1: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi,
0: I'm Chris Starwalt, and this is The Hangover, a limited-run podcast from The Dispatch and Dispatch Media that aims to figure out how Republicans took the shortest trip for a party in nearly 70 years from total control in Washington to absolute minority. The GOP doesn't seem very interested in understanding why, so we'll have to do it for them. How did the surprise success of 2016 give way to defeat, an effort to steal the election, and the siege of the Capitol? And what comes next? Matthew Continetti knows more about the history of conservatism in the Republican Party than probably any writer working today. He is the author of a forthcoming book on those subjects that will no doubt quickly become the authoritative reference. Maybe that's why he was among the first journalists more than a decade ago to accurately foretell the populist revolt that remade the grand old party. He studied history at Columbia before serving as the opinion editor for the Weekly Standard and the founding editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon. He is a contributing editor for National Review and a columnist for Commentary Magazine, as well as my trusted colleague at the American Enterprise Institute. If you want to know what time it is, why not ask the guy who knows how the clock was made? Matthew, thank you for being with us.
1: Thanks for having me, Chris.
0: Uh, Okay, so... I remember the edition of the Weekly Standard with Sarah Palin on the cover. You wrote the cover piece for probably 2009 uh, about the Jacksonian revolution inside the Republican Party. And I think it's safe to say it's safe to say because only you and I are on this podcast. Uh no one will correct us, but I think it's safe to say that you were ahead of the curve on identifying the potency of the populist strain in the conservative movement even before twenty ten uh, going into the twenty ten midterms, you were and at the time you were eleven um you were ahead of the curve on this stuff. Um, what did you see then that made you? Get out there where other people weren't yet?
1: Uh, Well, I think Palin herself was the first thing, and the reaction to her, not only the reaction um, from the Republican grassroots, which was electric and which was um, love at first sight, um, but also the reaction from Republican elites and a lot of liberal elites who condescended to her, who misreported basic information about her. And you could kind of see that there was something of a class Um, divide—not class by income, but uh, class by kind of uh, attitude and cultural background.
0: Probably, if you wanted to find the one divided, probably college college degree holders versus non college degree holders. Yeah, and
1: also just uh, ideology. You know, conservatives loved her; liberals despised her, as we know, and liberals, including a lot of Republicans and moderate Republicans, uh, just everything that she represented, everything that Wasilla Alaska stood for, uh, revolted them. (laughs) And so uh, I wrote a book about the way that she was um, misrepresented in many cases, um, and what what that meant about American politics. And I, I think it showed that there was this gap between the way that um, you know well-credentialed elites in Washington saw the world and saw their own country, and the way that the people who loved Sarah Palin and Sarah Palin herself, or remember Joe the plumber, Joe w- Wurzelbacher, who confronted uh, Obama on that Ohio street and asked you, and know, then, "What do you mean about spread the wealth?" Um, that That was going to be a, a major issue. Especially because Obama made no attempt or had any interest in down, downplaying
0: uh, this cultural conflict. So, th- this, the birth of this was contemporaneous to the Tea Party movement in 2010. And as you described with Joe Verzelbacher uh, and <laughs> Obama in his front yard in Ohio. Uh, with Palin, the message was about limited government, less spending, uh, mm-hmm. lower taxes, a uh, uh, le- uh, uh, less right, um, more restraint in government. And in Palin's case, it was ethics. Uh, she had made her name in Alaska politics by torching the Republican elites in the state who were in bed with Exxon and Mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the regulatory capture that had taken place in Alaska. And so she had a little bit of the Huey Long against Standard Oil in Louisiana kind of jazz. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was a, what did they call them? Reformocons? Uh, it had a, it had a, (laughs) it, 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 these things, it, nothing sounds as dumb as the political buzzwords uh, from about four elections ago. Just it, when you talk about NASCAR dads, you th- want to th- fling yourself from the top of the Washington Monument. Is, hey, some I, of my best friends are reformicons. Yes. <laughs> 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 Tim Pawlenty on line three. Uh, so what, uh, when you say conservatives versus not conservatives, I think of what those folks were talking about then in 2010 as pretty standard issue conservative stuff, less government, uh, vigorous national defense. I I don't think anything that Sarah Palin was saying in that iteration or doing or calling for was that much of a departure from, dare I say, uh, uh, Reagan era um, fusionistic kind of republicanism, right?
1: Well, I think that's because the Tea Party kind of combined Economic conservatism with social conservatism. Mm-hmm. And so the Tea Party began with Rick Santelli's rant on CNBC talking about the bailouts and the spending uh, and saying we're going to hold a little Tea Party of our own. Uh, and then it kind of developed over And that time. Was, and
0: that was, if I recall that was February 09. That was February of 09. And what the the proposal that Santelli was ranting about was some debt forgiveness. They were going to just write down all of these loans or something i the think Fens it was part gonna... 2 i think yeah, it was, yeah,
1: yeah. It was, so it was the second part of the bailout that obama had to get through and, and he, I, of and, course that was through, that was uh you know in addition to that uh, what krauthammer called the uh most expensive bill in galactic history the the stimulus which of course looking back was a paltry 800 billion dollars
0: it's just darling now isn't
1: <laughs> it it's just darling <laughs> Minuscule compared to what we've spent (laughs) in the last year, Um, so that was that was its origin. Then it kind of took on a life of its own, and I spent a lot of time in 2010 trying to disentangle the various strands of the Tea Party. And so I wrote a, a piece, another piece after that Palin piece, a piece in the summer of 2010 called "The Two Faces of the Tea Party," kind of contrasting Rick Santelli's economic conservatism with the primarily social conservatism of the Fox host the then Fox host Glenn Beck. Mm-hmm. And what I said was that uh Santelli was a very typical supply sider. Optimistic, forward looking. He was even in Chicago. He was in Chicago right, <laughs> straight from Chicago. Uh, economy first, get the incentives right, America will rebound. Beck had a much darker view of America end of Obama and one that thought that Obama was on some sort of mission to destroy the country, that the country was hanging by the thread, and also would often interpolate uh, conspiracy theories or hints of conspiracy theories into his program. You remember him with at the blackboard, you know, where he oh, was I drawing do. I'm I drawing all these
0: connections. I don't know whether you know this, but <laughs> Valerie Jarrett was born in Iran. So you may want to you may want to you may want to check that out. It's Sound sounds thing. suspicious to me.
1: Well, you know, uh-huh. I sent a reporter for the Beacon, Andrew Stiles once went to Iran when the New York Times was having a tour there, and I told him to check out the Valerie Jarrett angle. <laughs> he came up with nothing. So that conspiracy was disproven.
0: In this house, um the the fear in those days, the the cultural divide in those days was about radical Islam, right? And a mu- the animating component about uh, Beck stuff. Um, as somebody I knew said about Gledbeck and the burnout there was, um, the problem with predicting the end of the world is that sooner or later you have to deliver. Uh, <laughs> and, but the the the, imp- the impending end of the American way of life in those days was closely connected to radical Islam, militant Islam. Mm-hmm. And so do I correctly identify that you have the Santelli wing And then on the cultural side and birtherism gets tangled up in here too Mm -hmm. with Obama. uh, But that at that point, that's where the divide comes in that. Well, I guess maybe the way to ask you is this, if it hadn't been militant Islam, would it have been something else?
1: Um, Probably there would be some other uh, conspiracy. Out there, um, there would be some sense, some apocalyptic sign. Um, that these are part the, the conspiracy theories, apocaly- apocalypticism are just features of populist movements. They're the dark side, in my view, of populist movements. Um, and remember, too, you saw it with Palin um, it, because uh, in 09, when the debate was over the uh, Obamacare bill it wasn't so much the spending or the taxes or even the individual mandate that Palin seized on as an issue. It was the death panel. Mm -hmm. It was the end of life guidance that was contained in one small provision of the bill Um, reimbursement for end of life guidance. And Palin said that this was going to lead to rationing, which would eventually lead in um, uh, people just being cut off from um, life sustaining therapy and in her political genius, which I believe she was, she kind of reduced this to the death panel. And that was a sign, I think, of the social cons- of of the more. And I don't mean this in any way to be derogatory of social conservatives. No, I am a social conservative. We but, stipulate um, for the record. But that was more the that was what she was she more interested in than the, um, and it was also more politically effective. Than, well, and, than and, and, the debates over spending. And so, and what as I think conservatives made um, uh, conservative intellectuals kind of read into the Tea Party what they wanted to see. Right. But by the time you get to 2010, oh, the Tea Party stands for Const- constitutional conservatism. And there's no doubt that the Constitution was a big part of Tea Party rhetoric and such. But I think that conservative intellectuals in Washington had a very different understanding of what constitutional conservatism conservatism meant than your average grassroots Tea Party activist. For the Tea Partier, what that meant was is that the current government in Washington, D.C. was something of an alien, invasive presence, and radical measures were necessary
0: to, to, to beat it back. Do you remember when the guy uh, dressed up as George Washington uh, found John Boehner? Uh, I forget where Republicans were ga- the, the the Republican leadership was gathering for some purpose. And John Boehner, uh R uh Merritt Cigarettes, uh was <laughs> or no, wait, Terry uh, was uh heading into the event and they were maybe it was at the retreat, and there was a summit. Boehner was came out from behind the the protective cordon and and met the guy dressed up as George Washington, who like presented him uh, whatever. And I I think back on that moment. That was in 2010. Here are these here are these Republicans who say, "Well, we like the low tax stuff. We like the uh, and Boehner certainly embraced um, the regulatory and tax side of things. Uh, his uh, absolute he was absolute rip blank. We I don't want to get beeped, uh, but he was he was rip blank over. Um, I remember him going through and reading." the cap and trade bill. Uh, and he, he had, they refrain, hell no, hell no. Yeah. Dude, yeah I remember that. Say when it went, yeah. Hell no. <laughs> uh, and he, so the Republican establishment was, was jiggy with a lot of the components of what, as you say, they read it. This was, this was isogesis, where you have the Republican elites are reading into, well, we all like these things. So there isn't really a problem here. Um, you have the 2010 wave. You get 64 seats in the House, um, and then what happened?
1: Uh, well, we had the uh, the fight over the debt ceiling in 2011, <laughs> and the uh, Tea Party Congress kind of crashed against uh, the reality of uh, of governments, which often happens um, with with uh, with these movements. Um, once they get in power, they're confronted with Having to act- make actual decisions, which com- costs, um, which ha- which carry costs with them. Um, maybe one one way to just if I can rewind the tape just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. One reason I was uh, interested in this question from from 08, from Palin's appearance on, was I had been covering the immigration debate in 06 and 07 when George W. wanted a comprehensive immigration reform. And unlike uh, my bosses at the Weekly Standard. Um, and I was a reporter, so I wasn't really editorializing on it. But I was just covering it. I was saying, this is not going to happen. This was not going to happen because the ha- there was no way that the House, of, the House GOP would back this bill, would back comprehensive immigration reform. This is, the Senate could do what it's want, it wanted, but the, the House GOP and the House is by nature closer to the people. Um, the House Geo- that the, the, the constituents of the House Republicans would not allow Bush's compromise to go through, and we saw huge pro- we saw huge protests during those debates, both for amnesty, and also against it. And of co- that's also at the time when Bush began losing substantially mm-hmm. among Republicans, mm-hmm. right? And- that's what dragged his approval all the way down. Was he he was losing popularity among Republicans in his second term, and the, the, uh, so. I kind of knew this was that there was a divide.
0: We should we should point out that in this as this debate was going on, the Bush people were ill prepared for the degree of blowback that they would get on the right. And when uh hosts like Laura Ingram on her radio show, Rush Limbaugh and others started really putting the wood to Bush on this, there was um there was genuine surprise, right? It would, it, would, it They were they, much like uh, your editors. There was genuine bafflement that there would be this, that it would be this intense, right?
1: Well, and you know, not not just bafflement, but also uh, princi- principled uh, opposition, in a sense that um, they they had a lot of conservatives in Washington and Republicans in Washington had thought that Pat Buchanan had been excised. Uh, in 2000, he had left the Republican Party. He went on a reform ticket and was with the uh, Astral you know, Transcendental Meditation guy, John Hagelin. Um, he was gone. And that meant the Buchananism was gone. And all of the Buchananite yeah. concerns, primarily immigration, did not matter. And, and in fact, you could kind of just say to Republican voters who, who were motivated by this issue, uh, you're, you're wrong, you might be racist, we don't need you.
0: Well, I was gonna but, wait to do the rewind on this until the end, <laughs> okay. but since we're here, yeah. let's let's go all the way back there then. Okay, uh, I promise listeners that we are going to get you to 2016 and 2020. We're <laughs> we going, to, yeah, we're right. going back. We, we keep, I could talk ground. about
1: 2012, but yeah, sure, we could go back we're,
0: wherever we, you want. We keep, we, keep, we keep losing ground because uh, now we're going to go to 1992 uh, <laughs> yeah. and Pat Buchanan um, uh, talking about America in a conflict. He gets his. He gets his uh, Republican convention address uh, for uh, his success against George H.W. Bush. And they give him his speech in 92. And this is supposed to be uh, kinder, gentler yeah. points of light. Uh, this is supposed to be uh, bringing Americans together. And Buchanan gets up there and he is also ripped blank. Uh, and he talks about how um, he describes a soldier uh, in, 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 uh, one of the units, I don't know whether he was a Marine or they, Bush actually dispatched regular army to Los Angeles over the riots. And, uh, the, here is Buchanan putting likening the Republicans to this soldier with a rifle who has to protect a nursing home who now I don't believe this ever happened for a second, but that a lone soldier with a rifle had to turn back rioters who wanted to burn down a nursing home. Now, I'm anti-rioters. I want to just state for the record, I'm anti-rioting. But I doubt that the that the South Central rioters in Los Angeles had nursing homes uh, on, on their target list. But Buchanan said that that's what Republicans had to be like in this culture war uh, and that they, as he said earlier in that campaign, uh, that, uh, no, that was at the close of that speech and he talked about yeah. Uh, They that they were facing the Battle of Armageddon, that Republicans were facing the Battle of Armageddon, and they had to be ready. So, as I told Pat Buchanan in 2016, I said, you won, it just took a little longer for all of the results to come in, right? Yeah, more or less.
1: You know, it's a fascinating thing about the culture war speech, the religious war speech, uh, as it's known. Um, Bush actually uh, called Buchanan after the speech was delivered and thanked him for it. He liked it. it there's an entry in his diary that, that John Meacham notes in his biography of H.W. That initially, he thought the speech was good. The people who did not like the speech at the get-go, very interesting, Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan. Um, now, there you go. <laughs> Reagan let it be known. Reagan let it be known that he did not. And he attended that convention. That was his last Republican convention. Um, he, he did not like that speech.
0: I imagine what what George H.W. Bush liked about it was that it was pretty kind to George H.W. Bush. It was, and it was
1: also tough on Hillary. And so in the diary entry, he said he liked the fact that it allowed him to play good cop with Buchanan kind of snarling at Hillary and and Bill, um, which was the top half of the speech. By the way, it's a piece of American rhetoric that should be studied, like many of (laughs) Buchanan's writings. It's a brilliant piece of writing. But of course, now has this um, uh, kind of iconic uh, status as a uh, as a arbinger of
0: of what Trump would represent, and one um, more rewind, and then we'll go okay. forward. I swear. Yeah. So <laughs> the uh, the address that Pat Buchanan gave in 1992 was cribbed, uh, much more elegantly crafted, but cribbed from the 1964 and 1968 runs of George Wallace. Right. This is the yeah. the, the 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 that that the same energy. That George Wallace found when he came north in 64 and 68, first in 64, and he finds out that in Wisconsin and Indiana and all of these places, there are people who aren't interested in segregation as his voters were in Alabama, but they are interested in stopping busing and they do believe that there is a culture war that they're losing, right? Yeah. I feel like I
1: ate a brownie that was laced with something because I'm like (laughs) hurtling backward in time.
0: Up next, Lincoln Douglas (laughs) debate. Let's talk about George
1: Wallace. You're absolutely right. When Wallace went in 64, the whole world was shocked at how well he performed in the North. Um, and uh, especially the Democrats. Wallace, of course, uh, in, in 68, runs his third party and um, kind of reduces Nixon's margin. Six, uh, Nixon barely, barely won uh, in, in 1968.
0: Close but election. He, but if it hadn't been for Wallace, of course, Democrats well, would have done better in the South, presumably yeah. and presumably blah, blah, blah.
1: but also in the northern cities. It's hard to tell because of Wallace's Wallace's appeal uh was not just in the south as we stayed. And by this time he, of course, has decided that segregation is a losing issue. So Wallace as a as a as a as the Ur demagogue knew that he could he had to move on to something else. And by that point it was the pointy heads, the bureaucrats, both parties. Couldn't, are park a,
0: couldn't park a bicycle straight.
1: Right. It's uh, nice to say, and that attracted a lot of voters who were uh, basically uh, Catholic Catholic voters, ethnic, uh, you know, the 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 either the immigrants themselves or the the sons and daughters of immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe who were living in the North. So the first thing that Buchanan Nixon and an, a young man that Buchanan had recommended Nixon hire in '68, this man was named Kevin Phillips. First thing they realized they had to do is in order to win re- re-election, we need to bring these, the Wallace voters on board and what we have to figure out a way to do it. That's not explicitly or even, or even anyway, racist. I mean, just find a way to appeal to them that doesn't have the racial baggage. Now, of course they, they were accused of being, you know, of using dog Wilson's and everything by the left, but this was their strategy. And, um, and so they succeeded because and then, um mainly because the nixon's opponent in 1972 george mcgovern was so weak uh and and just so uh the Democrats beyond beyond where the country was yeah. ready to go i mean you know by now mcgovern and in 2021 terms, it's like you know a moderate Democrat, but nonetheless, um,
0: yeah, he's Evan by now.
1: Yeah, he's Evan <laughs> by now. But in '72, he was like, no way, we were we're not going to go. He was the Bernie Sanders of 1972. So if I had
0: been paying attention, if I had been thinking more clearly, in 2008, when Sarah from Wasilla, yeah. is selected. I would have and having seen the debate over immigration and having thought about Jesse Ventura uh and the success of the reform party and Ross Perot that, right and Ross 90, Perot that it was yeah. that it wasn't just about reform low taxes low regulation and 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 holding the elites to account I I would have known like you that there was this crackle in the wire and that the that it had manifested itself very sharply already in two thousand seven and two thousand or two thousand six and two thousand seven around the debate around immigration, where the Republican elites who thought that the Buchananism uh, and its antecedents had been banished in favor of this new uh, much more enlightened market oriented kind of conservatism, and compassionate uh, they, conservatism. Yeah. Yes, they thought, uh, and. That that it was that it was there. It was in the line the whole time. Is that right? It never
1: left. It's always been part of the American right, um, and always will be. And um, and there's ways that you can uh, modulate it, 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 mainly through leadership. Um, but uh, this the, it's in, You cannot separate populism from from the American right. Um, so, and what's what's interesting is. Uh, you know, as we approach 2012, just so to, to kind of move forward again, um, you saw with the with with the, the excitement surrounding Donald Trump's flirtation with entering the race. I traveled to New Hampshire in the spring of 2011
0: the to birther see thing. Trump
1: to yep. see Trump. Yeah, and I was there uh, when the helicopter came down outside the hangar in New in, in New Hampshire. And he came with this staged thing. And there were about 200 of us in this hangar. And then we followed him to various things. And and I I will never forget when we went to a diner in New Hampshire. And he went in the back of the diner to have a private meeting with somebody. I I don't know who it was. And as he was in this private meeting, that was the moment that Robert Gibbs came out into the White House uh, briefing room and presented the long form birth certificate of That's Barack right. Obama. That's so right. Trump didn't know until he left, he came into the room. And I was, I was five feet away from him as he came out of the room and he looked at one of the flat screen TVs on the wall with the news that they finally had produced the long form birth certificate. Trump looked at it. And as I, as you can still do, you see the squint and the, the wheels start turning. And then he looked at us in the press and he said, they wouldn't have done it if not for me. And he was right. And he was right. And so then, so that so there was a perfect way of Trump's um, mental jujitsu in that he can take every situation possible and turn it not only into about him, but in some way that shows his strength or something. But
0: and Trump, then we but, went. Trump, but, but Trump and Obama were both good at that, right? Obama got a lot of mileage out of birtherism, right? He himself sure. for his own. Well oh, they it, fed it, off
1: each other. Yeah, they're they're it, like the Joker and Batman.
0: Yes, and we we won't say who's who <laughs> we won't say who's who. <laughs> I think we know who. But yeah. anyway, uh the the Trump is so Trump dabbles in 11. He has the birther stuff. Him and Joe Arpaio are going oh, go to can I just Canada. say one
1: more moment about that trip yeah. real quickly yeah, yeah, because yeah. it gets to our point here. So then we go out into the main dining room of the restaurant and I'm again, I'm I'm literally next to him as he's going around these people. And he talks to, he goes, stops by one table of guys who are all have gray hair and long gray beards and everything. And the wheel, the, the squint, the wheels turn. And he says, I'm not going to cut your social security or Medicare. And they loved it. So that was, again, a sign. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure. I didn't quite, this is in retrospect now. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't, because I was all for Paul Ryan's roadmap and, and the entitlement reforms at the time. Um, and in fact, I still am, if yeah, yeah, gonna, yeah. you know, if we're going to delay or avert a catastrophe. But nonetheless, um, at the time, at the time, Trump knew something that, again, most Republican politicians did not, which is that for your median Republican voter or or, in fact, your median independent voter or even Democratic voter who might vote for Republicans on cultural concerns. But at the end of the day, there's like, no, those Republicans, they get in here they're just going to slash my Medicare and Social Security. They understood that you needed to take those issues off the table in order to get them on, on, these, cultural, on these cultural things. And that's something that no one in Washington understood it's because, of course, what did the Republican Party do in 2012 after the Tea Party wave? Well, they nominate the man who established the basis for Obamacare when he was right. governor of Massachusetts, and he selects as vice president, the architect of the roadmap, the, the House, uh, chairman of the House Budget Committee. Paul Ryan. So um, people, I don't think Washington was uh, quite aware of what was going on uh, in these, in, in among the GOP grassroots in 2012, even though it should be said that the Romney Ryan ticket uh, got a higher percentage of the vote in 2012 than the Trump-Pence ticket did in either but, of their But of their in
0: order, but, but in order to win a primary, what Ryan uh, what, Romney Ryan, what Romney had to do to get there against yeah. a restive, unhappy, crabby Republican base that did not like his, all of all of that stuff. When, and I just, before we leave all this entirely, we should point out, Trump's first run for president was in 2000 on the Reform Party to, yeah, to right, be a successor course, yeah. to Ross Perot. And in fact, he once said that he was running because he did not want the Reform Party to be taken over by Pat Buchanan, who liked Nazis. <laughs> and as he said, some kind of one of these great Trump hand, like, I don't know, I guess he's some kind of Nazi or whatever he said, uh, to, to sum up Buchanan. Uh, but it was that same energy that he was tapping back into in 2011, not Nazism. Uh, it was the, the Buchananite reform party energy that he was tapping into in 2011 with the birther stuff. Right.
1: That aspect of populism, which can easily devolve into conspiracy theory, is something Mm -hmm. Trump knows very well.
0: So the through lines- More than happy
1: with using using to his, what he perceives as his advantage.
0: The through lines here go all the way back. We could, we can definitely say to listeners, the through lines here (laughs) go all the way back to the early 1960s and probably before. Oh, Probably before on on this con- th- this this flavor of the American right. So we um, talked to Eric Cantor about how the cruise shutdown of 2013. So we know, so we have 2012 takes place. Uh, the Republican base is sour about Romney. Is, believes that uh, that Romney was too weak, was too soft. Uh, didn't go hard enough against Obama, which of course is, is true in at least one sense, which is that as the author of Romney care, he could not exploit Obama's greatest weakness. He was, they, the Republicans had chosen the one only person in America who could not prosecute Obama on his greatest weakness, which was his health insurance program. Uh, so you have this feeling <clears throat> the, uh, tea party wave comes in. I think we've resynced our timelines now. Uh, <laughs> We're like we're like Avengers Endgame. Now every, exactly. all the exactly. timelines are coming back. Right. Put the put the ring on and you will know <laughs> that we will be united in the future. Uh for President Camacho's inaugural address in <laughs> 2028. But the 2013 I think starts and tell me if you think this is true. 2013 starts the uh the modern or what the period that concluded, let's say on January 6th, uh, 2021, uh, the cruise shutdown, we're going to defund Obamacare. We're going to do this stuff was to me, the sign that the Republicans were really falling apart. Like this was really this, the the unit cohesion had dropped to a precariously low point.
1: Uh, I'm going to differ with you slightly. Hit me. Uh, I think, the, you can still view the Cruz shutdown as part of this, uh, the first Tea Party wave. Um, I think what happened was, uh, I, I think it's 14 when we see the, the turn toward, um, toward Trump. So, in, uh, w- a few things happened. The first thing was, uh, Obama wins. He wins because his voters showed up, surge in, um, the black vote in
0: particular in the Rust Belt. In Ohio, and did very well in Florida. Did better than uh, I expected him to do in Florida, and really performed in Ohio. He,
1: yeah, and he, he, his read from it uh, was was slightly different um, uh, than a lot of the uh, sephologists. Which which was, he said, "Well, I'm going to." win. He gave that interview to the Des Moines Register right before the election. He said, "If I'm going to win re-elections, because of the Hispanic vote, and so immigration reform is going to be my top priority." Now, I don't actually think he won re-election because of the Hispanic vote. I think he won re-election for two reasons. One, the surge in the African-American vote. And two, a depression among, uh, of the vote among um, the so-called white working class, that is, white voters without college degrees in the Rust Belt Midwest. That's why he won re-election. Nonetheless, his first priority is immigration reform, which, as we've mentioned throughout this podcast, is like the no-no for Republican voters. Right. <laughs> no, we don't want it. That's what they've been saying for decades. We don't want immigration reform. But what does the Republican Party do? They're so spooked from this loss that they say, oh, number one thing on our agenda immigration reform, which is exactly right. what their voters don't want. So you had Obama's turn to immigration. You had, coincident with that, the release of the RNC autopsy report, which said mm. that the re- way that Republicans are going to come back is by basically ditching our own voters. We're going to say goodbye to the social conservatives. We're going to try to make a hard play for Hispanic voters. And the, way, the only way to do that, the only way to do that, according to the autopsy, is by amnesting the 11 million plus illegal immigrants there are in this country. So that's another thing that says to Republican voters, whoa, whoa, whoa.
0: And, this so, is, and, you're, so, and you're here talking about like the Rubio, Schumer, yeah, like gang the, of gang eight. Of eight the gang Bill. of eight. Right. That was a that was a laughably predictable failure that you could see Marco Rubio running up to the football and Obama was like, "Do you think we're really going to?" Yeah. Right again, really again the house
1: the house was never going to vote for it. So like, just had it been in the Bush era when yeah. um, with the Republican House, we we're just not going to get it. So um, the, my point being is. This cruise shutdown, the cruise shutdown was very much about Obamacare and that whole debate that preceded it. And it was silly. There was no way they were going to defund Obamacare. But I actually think the political effects of the shutdown were minimal. What we really saw in 2014 with your previous guest, uh, Eric Cantor's loss in his primary yeah, oh, to Dave yeah, yeah. well, we was that, too. that was, hold it. Okay. That was the stop sign from the Republican voters. You are not going to do this immigration thing. And and then on top of that, in fourteen, you had the midterm election, which was terrible for Obama. He loses the Senate and he comes out and he says, and the most, I think one of the worst things a president has ever done. He says, yeah, I lost the election, but you know what? I've decided I'm not only going to listen to the voters, I'm going to listen to the people who voted for me or who didn't vote. Mm-hmm. And he decides basically not to, as he always did, he never wavered um, uh, from what he wanted to do uh, when he was dealt an electoral setback. right? And so one of his first actions was expanding the DACA program, the administrative amnesty, um, not only to the children who had been brought here illegally, but to now to their parents, even though he was on record about a dozen times saying that he lacked the constitutional authority to do this thing. That simple thing enraged the republicans enraged them and 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 I, there was this it was who is going to stop this stop this madness this feeling that the government was no longer accountable to the electorate and um and especially obama, in that
0: case because obama himself had said that he did not have the constitutional it, authority exactly. so to do and right. then said eh, whatever uh, here we go And
1: then you had just, uh, I think things went down from there. I think the last two years of the Obama administration were just an unmitigated disaster. I I mean, uh, Democrats are very good at forgetting this. But you had the uh, Russian invasion of Crimea. You had the birth of ISIS and ISIS's incredible growth throughout the Middle East. You had, again, this administrative, all these administrative actions and executive orders, Obama's famous pen and phone, that he would just start doing these things without any debate. And you're telling all of the, the half of the country that doesn't approve the way that Obama's doing his job. Um, we don't care. We not We literally so, do not care.
0: But didn't didn't think. wasn't this by design? Uh, there, there's a theory of the case here, and I'm I'm not entirely. I don't embrace it entirely. But I think there's. I think it's a component which is if we think back to when you mentioned Robert Gibbs, when they said Rush Limbaugh is the leader of the Republican Party. Uh, and uh, and elevated Donald Trump's attacks on the birther stuff. They said, oh, look at this guy. This is what the Republicans are today. And they talked about, I don't remember whether it was Obama himself or maybe it was Plough, uh, who said uh, we have to break the fever. It was Axelrod, It was Axelrod who said, yeah. we have to break the fever in the Republican Party. And their idea about breaking the fever was to spike the fever, to... to engage with republicans in such a way as to elevate the wackiest voices to emphasize issues of culture and race to the highest possible extreme in the belief that that wing of the party was unelectable uh and that this would would cure the republicans of their of their ailments because they would be shown the error of their ways right yeah well how'd that work out <laughs> exactly well i mean the the it's perfectly encapsulated when Bill Clinton tells Donald Trump, "Yeah, you ought to probably think about running for president. I don't know, you're good." Buddy. And 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 so and and the jo- and the joke was on everybody, right? Yeah. Uh, because yeah. then Trump had to be president, uh, and the Republicans had to have Trump, and the Democrats lost the presidency. So it it sounds to me like you're the my takeaways so far. Immigration is a huge driver, and it's it, it is prima facie in Trump's first speech, right? Yeah. It, it is from from the beginning with Trump, he knows this is the issue that uh, touches uh, the erogenous zones of of many of these Republicans, of that third of the Republican party that carried him to victory in the 2016 primaries. This is the annealing issue. So immigration uh, is becomes the touchstone culture issue uh, inside the Republican Party uh, after the turn of the century um, and that Trump embraces that. Um, And I'm also getting that there's nothing new particularly about this part of the Republican Party. But here's a question. Is it growing in size, shrinking in size? Is it about the same size? I can tell you that the markers that I look for uh, in demography about who are these voters, and I don't like the term "white working class" because I think it connotes a, a fixity that is not not real, I think people over the course of their lives as they ate, but we are talking about older white Americans uh without college degrees, right who that's, that, that, that's who demographically make up the the core of this group, right? Um, sure. Yeah. Okay. So the, are the, from a demographic standpoint, while there are advantages for Republicans in the sense that they live in helpful places, right? Uh, that the distribution of these individuals across the country, uh, is helpful for Republicans, uh, that Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania are all getting more Republican, Uh, because the younger voters are moving other places. Uh, I I think, for example, Minnesota will be a Republican state, uh, a Republican-ish state uh, pretty soon, just based on where the concentrations of these kinds of voters are. Um, But would you say now, today, this share of the Republican electorate is growing, shrinking, static? What is it?
1: As a share of the Republican electorate, it's growing. Okay. Um, for three decades now, the Republicans have traded bases with the Democrats. The base of the Democratic Party was white voters without college degrees. That was the basis of Roosevelt, Kennedy, Preach. LBJ, and even, by the way, Clinton. Bill Clinton. Uh, he, he, had to, he had to get some of them in there. You always needed some of them in there. Even again, like I say, in Obama in 2012. Uh, they either didn't vote or they they voted in an in enough proportion to put him uh safely in in the re-election column um so those but those voters have been for decades now migrating into the Republican party mainly as a result of culture and um uh, meanwhile um what's happened in particular the last two decades is that the traditional base of the Republican party which are your upstanding Chamber of Commerce, Business Roundtable types, the white voters who are
0: affluent suburbanites, affluent
1: suburbanites, professionals, the country clubs, they are moving, marching into the Democratic Party. (laughs) So this process is going on for some time. Now, what's interesting about um, just the 2020 election is you saw some signs that the um, the cultural message of the Republican Party uh, under Trump could appeal to groups uh, that were not traditionally associated with the Republican right. party, um, Latinos voters uh, in Florida and Texas, also African-American males. Yep. Um, if you start focusing on issues of patriotism, um, uh, law and order, anti-socialism and anti-PC uh, as Trump did, you know, um, there, there, plus with, you know, Trump also had that economic, Trump's economic message is different from many Republicans. Most Republicans are talking about growth, right? But people don't understand growth. I mean, it's right. a, it's just a statistic, but Trump promised was jobs, right. jobs, and people know the, if they have a job or not. And, the, and the, he gave them jobs.
0: The, the cuts, 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 and jobs, 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 jobs act. Yeah. Right. Uh, the, so as we think about the 2020 electorate, we see a Republican party that does find purchase with, I'll put it this way. The evidence suggests that race is far less important than socioeconomic status and gender. Or really, um,
1: well, yeah, I, I just correct. I, I, I might differ a little bit. It's not necessarily, it's, um, it's ideology. So if you talk to the, uh, David Shore, who's the Bernie-loving mm-hmm. um, election analyst, he made a very interesting observation, which is what's happened in, what happened in 2020 is every, every demographic group has its own ideological subgroups. But mm-hmm. for most of, a politi- most of the modern political history, if you were a conservative black male, you would still vote for the Democrats, right? right. He, what he found in 2020 is that if you're a conservative, it didn't matter what ethnic group you belong to. You would you started voting for Republicans, right? And so this 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 ideological sort is becoming more important than the racial ethnic, ethnic sort in in the in the in twenty twenty. And of course, the question is: Is this going to continue in the post Trump era, or, uh, is or at there least post Trump era? Is there a post Trump era? One, two. Would it continue? Um, And or or I mean, the test case is next year because even if. Donald Trump decides to be a player, even if he thinks that he's going to run in 2024, he won't be on the ballot anywhere in 2022. And when, and when these cult of personality candidates aren't on the ballot, and you saw this with Obama, uh, it
0: doesn't, the, the charisma doesn't really transfer. Lou Barletta will not create the same tingles as Donald Trump. No. And you he see these people, the you tingles.
1: see that Josh Mandel, for example, in the entering the oh. uh, Republican primary for Ohio Senate to replace Rob Portman, he's trying to be Trump or he's definitely, what he's trying to do is get Trump's endorsement. Um, yes. but, but he's doing it in the way that he thinks Trump would do it. And I just, to me anyway, it comes off as so, so, uh, Badly done and just so off-putting, but
0: it's 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 a little clammy. It's only there's only clammy.
1: one, as he would be the first to tell you. There's only one Donald
0: Trump, oh, as, he, as he told <laughs> us. Only, I, <laughs> only, can I, right. only, only I can do it. Only I can do it. So, it I I think I I hope people take away from this the understanding that you have a Republican Party where. There is all of this contempt and all of this resentment between, I will call them, traditional conservatives and the populist right. So you have this party where you have these divided components, um, but you always have that, right? That's not new. It's not a new thing that uh, the eastern establishment was uh, resentful of Ronald Reagan and Barry Goldwater. It's not. It it follows different lines and it it clusters around different ideological. But the divide's not new. The question I have for you, is the divide so deep now, right? After January 6th, is it so deep now? And not because of it, not because of January 6th, but did that reveal this tension uh, at such a great degree inside the Republican Party that they would not be able to paper things over again. Because that's what parties do, right? They have these deep differences, hatreds and resentments. And to win, you mentioned Bill Clinton, uh, in 1992, Democrats became willing to forget their old antipathies for long enough to try to get back in the White House. Can Republicans do that? How long will it take them to do that?
1: First, I think Democrats are a lot smarter about politics than Republicans, so um, that would suggest maybe Republicans won't be able to do it. I, look, I don't know. I mean, the test case is next year. The, the test case is twenty twenty two because what you're going to have, at least in a few races, will be a Trump endorsed candidate in a primary up against a McConnell endorsed yep. candidate in a primary. And I'll just I'll tell you, the record shows that the McConnell endorsed candidates win. And, crush.
0: And they crush. And, and Steve, this, Bannon, Steve Bannon learned in 2018 the hard way. Yeah,
1: You learned that in 2018, but also, by the way, you learned it in 2010 and 2012, which is you have to think about how American politics might look if the Republicans had actually ca- captured the Senate as well as the House in 2010. Right. Mm-hmm. That those four years where Harry Reid still controlled the Senate, that, things were very different. Um, it, but why did we lose the Senate? Why did the Republicans or conservatives lose the Senate in in 2010 and 2012? It's because they nominated terrible candidates, both cycles. So she was not a witch, but she's not a witch, legitimate rape, (laughs) Sharon angle. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I mean, and look, you could have anyway. So a lot comes down to candidates. I am a firm believer. Everything I've learned about politics and, you know, my two decades here in Washington covering it is candidates matter for about 90%. Um Lord yes. You know, uh, and so um I need to see next year when you have a primary between a McConnell endorsed candidate and a Trump endorsed candidate who wins. And if it's the Trump endorsed candidate and that Trump endorsed candidate is uh
0: is just not going to appeal to the, the swing voters you need to And and we should point out we're talking about states even Missouri now included in the list. Where there are enough persuadable Republican leaners to lose a, for Republicans to lose. Yeah, I mean certainty. that would be something.
1: I mean that would be something to lose Missouri, which has been trending hard red the last twenty years. I mean, if you want to look at just states that trend red, I might not. I, I'm not willing to quite give you Minnesota yet, but but you look at Missouri. Um, and you look at look at Florida. I mean, just in the last eight years, how Florida's going going red. But anyway, um, I want to see. I want to see who wins. And, um, and that's going to determine a lot. And, you know, and, and if the, th- if the Republican party just is likes being a kind of, um, forget about the center right party, but just a populist party, uh, populist conservative party that doesn't make any effort to win the independent vote, uh, which determines the winner is in our elections. And that's the other thing I've learned in two decades <laughs> you want to win independence there's only one right. guy who lost them at w by a point in 04 and who who wins right
0: but you got but you got it you got to at least for Republicans, you got to split them they right? have to yeah, at least fairly, and
1: trump won them in 2016 that's what i yep. wrote in the new york times uh, last year or, or 2019 actually when he when he launched his re-election i said he won people forget he won independence if he loses independence as he did he's not going to win. So you have to win independence. And um, if if Republicans don't feel like they're going to do that, then they're, they're going to be in the wilderness for quite some time, and just as just as William Jennings Bryan's Democratic Party was. I mean, I think the parallels there are very interesting. It, it was, somehow the Republican Party is morphing into uh, the WJB Democrats of, of the, the Br- early the, 20th century. The, the,
0: the- the prairie populist bojo, and as Republicans increasingly embrace, you hear Rubio talking about union organizing, you hear Josh Hawley talking about the blue collar bonus, as Republicans move over, as they, as they put economic, uh, populism in the basket with the cultural populism, nice. you can definitely see how, uh, the boy orator of the plat, uh, lo- looms, looms over, um. Matthew Continetti, uh, you are wise, you are generous. Uh, I, I say that you're wise because I agree with almost everything that you <laughs> said, uh, particularly, uh, but I think, uh, you should be definitely, uh, you deserve your brevet, uh, stripes for being really one of the first person, the first people I, I knew to really be on this and get it and see it. And you were right. And it's good to be right
1: it is so nice not only is it good to be right it's good to be told you were right (laughs) so i thank you as as journalists
0: as journalists we know that never happens yeah i know i know i'm right yeah but to be told (laughs) that i'm right that is
1: that is far more pleasing
0: uh matthew Continetti, we are in your debt thank you for being with us thank you